Good day, good folks. You are listening to Talk That Keeps You Woke. And with your awakening, we hope that you will take in the information and knowledge we provide. So make sure you like and subscribe while you hop on this ride as we inform, persuade, entertain, and engage in discussion. Welcome to Potlicker Podcast, which is knowledge to feed your soul. I may go one half of Potlicker. I go by Dr. A, the inquisitive one. A great debater, Mr. Slow Talker, a rhetorician, and an all-around nice guy, and a member of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. The other half of Potlicker is my homie, my dear friend for more than 30 years, Ken Parker Jackson Esquire, the legal one, Mrs. Creativity, never obnoxious, the gifted one, a terrific lady, and a member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. Hey, what's going on, partner? Welcome back. How was your week? Hello, 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 everyone. My week was good, and I am well. How are you, Dr. A? I'm doing fine. I can't complain. Two more weeks of school, and then we have a little three-week break if we're not teaching summer school, and I have yet to get a summer school course, hopefully that will change. Welcome to Pod Liquor Podcast, all our viewers and listeners. And as always, we start our show off with a wow for the week. And wow stands for words of wisdom. And today, oh, a little messed up here. Our noses are broad. Our lips are thick. Our hair is nappy. We are black and beautiful. That's Stokely Carmichael, who was instrumental with the Black Power Movement. Um, what I have to say about this is just talking about kind of going against the standard of beauty that America has adopted, which is Eurocentric, which is light eyes, whether they be blue, green, or hazel, white skin, blonde hair, very thin that is the American standard of beauty. And the closer you get to that standard, uh, the quote unquote prettier you are or the more beautiful you are. This has, and this is a white supremacy point of view, just saying that the white body is superior looking than other bodies. And um, this has impacted uh, communities of colors of uh, color because we sometimes do the same thing um, we with colorism we favor light over dark and that's not just an african-american community that's in hispanic community as well so um, i think stokely said something to let us be proud of our natural selves and the way we look and recognize that we don't have to govern ourselves by Eurocentric standard of beauty. What say you? That is indeed true. And, you know, it's interesting, um, the features that he pointed out with our broad noses and our thick lips and our nappy hair are sometimes viewed as not attractive. However, there are people today that are not black who pay to have thicker lips and darker skin and curly hair. And 
thicker hips or you know bigger behind that are generally features of black people so i i say i'm happy i'm nappy and i embrace the, the natural curl in my hair so yes we are black and we are beautiful i agree yeah so that is stokely carmichael that amazing quote that uh we should uh take serious indeed indeed we should all right and with that said let us move on So our first plug of the day always is our product. And I told you I am a man who wears several different uh, colognes. And today I have for you Jimmy Choo. It's called Man Blue. It's a lighter scent that we have, uh, that they have. Um, it smells good. It's definitely like a refreshing type of scent it's not overpowering it's not strong uh it has a nice light i would say springtime type of scent so jimmy chu well, right. is uh is is a uh, what uh we're pushing for our product of the day okay and let us move on so what's going on today in our community or i should say in our nation texas is prevalent on our podcast today i know As it was last week there's a lot going on in this state where oh i reside God. Um, right now, the Texas Senate approves bill eliminating tenure, uh, which is a big deal. But before we get into the discussion, I just want to let folks know, like, and this is from Interfolio, academic tenure refers to an educator's employment status within a higher education institution. When a professor has gained tenure, he or she can only be determined for a justifiable cause or under extreme circumstances, such as program discontinuation or severe financial straits. They can These only be what? Hmm? You said they can only be what? Terminated. Okay. Right. Um, At first, it sounded like you said determined. I think you meant terminated. Yeah, can if I said that he or she can only be terminated, terminated. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, for a justifiable cause under extreme circumstances such as program discontinuation. That means they get rid of your department. Mm -hmm. Um, like they're getting rid of language at one of the institutions uh, that I teach, uh, which I'm employed. I should say by. They're getting uh, rid of language, like. Learning a language? Yeah. Um, hmm. When I, let me say they're downsizing it. How about that? Okay. 
when I say getting rid of land, like there are no more, there are requirements that you may have to take, but I don't think at this institution, and maybe I should check that you can no longer major in Spanish or French in a foreign yes. language. Spanish or French. Okay. Okay. So, um, the the bill they're eliminating tenure, um, but they're doing it for the wrong reasons. They feel that if they eliminate tenure, you, um, are, are, stopping teachers uh preventing teachers from hiding behind tenure and and teaching what they want to teach so academic freedom um tenure came up so people can teach you know um from different textbooks and different scholars that are not quote unquote safe i guess or more american in their, uh, their research, mm -hmm. uh, what I'm saying is that they might do research that talks of the ill wills of America. And now you can see today they're not liking that state of Texas. And they think uh, tenure protects professors from this. Um, but they need to look at it differently because that's not the case. You still can be terminated from an institution for several other reasons. Um, so your tenure doesn't hold, you can't do anything to a student. You can't um, do research um, that is not ethical. You can't plagiarize. You can't do any of that stuff. If you do that, you lose your tenure and your job. Yeah, but I would suspect that it would be more difficult if you're a tenured professor. So I think here the goal may be to be able to terminate professors that I think they would deem woke and to be able to do it more easily um, without the tenure. And so that's what it seems like the goal is here. And again, I just feel like it's an overreach of the governor, Tex uh, governor of Texas, Greg Abbott's administration. Once again, um, another bad idea from the Abbott administration. And I think that they should just focus on ensuring that all Texans have a better quality of life and a livable wage and a solid education and access to safe housing and health care instead of worrying about trying to get rid of woke teachers. That's what I think. Yeah, I, yeah they're, they're, um, people who already have tenure cannot lose it. This is only for new hires, the, the bill. It's only for new people that come in and um, those people that come in and you know start off teaching now now in the state of Texas, they won't be protected by tenure. So they will be at jeopardy of losing their jobs. But again, this is just 
ridiculous. This really takes away academic freedom. Um, if you don't want us to discuss the civil rights and what happened during Jim Crow, if you don't want us to talk about um, the horrible things that slavery has done uh, or did, uh, you don't want us to talk about um, critical race theory at the collegiate level. You, you don't want America's history unless it's pristine and sanitized to uh, be taught in institutions of higher learning. So that is horrible, I think, um, being a professor myself on two college campuses. Um, like they said last week, they were trying to get rid of our beliefs, like teaching our beliefs. Uh, they thought we were forcing students to adapt to our beliefs. So I asked my students that question, and they had some high school um, teachers that did that. They said, I had about three students that spoke out that when they were doing papers, they weren't allowed to do certain papers that went against their professors. Mm -hmm. um, instructors or professors or teachers that are teaching that way, they really need to reevaluate wanting to be a teacher. Uh, education is about scholastic freedom. Education is about, you know, higher learning, you know, knowledge, gaining knowledge, meaningful knowledge gaining meaning, but it's not to indoctrinate people into your beliefs. It I know to give them a, a different way of looking at things. Um, because like I said, when I talk about white supremacy in my classroom, every time I bring it up, they think about white nationalists, the Proud Boys and the KKK. And then after I explained that it's an ideology that basically saying white is superior to black and that a lot of people in this country, given their racial makeups, are indoctrinated by white supremacy and believe in, and have some white supremacy perspectives. Like I said, when your mother said, I ain't sending you to that black school, I'm sending you to the white school. You know, um, that's usually white supremacy in itself. It's just like white ice is colder <laughs> and white water is wetter. So it goes on. Um, and so when I explain it that way, they begin to take it a different way. And then they understand because we're looking at media, the white supremacy that takes uh, place in media, especially when it comes to the standards of beauty. But do you think this legislation will deter professors from wanting to express their ideas freely in a classroom for fear think, that they may be terminated? I think so, especially new professors coming in. Um, it's just sad that they can't get tenure. Forget about 
because that means you're always, and people could say, well, anybody's always at jeopardy of losing their job. Um, but it's different in academia. But yeah, I think people will watch what they say. I think people watch what they say now, and I, um, I, I, which is harmful to the students. Right. And I also think that it could deter um, the best talent or the, the you know, best qualified teachers from one or professors from wanting to come to the university if they don't or if they're not able to receive that benefit of job security through tenure. And but then there's on the other side of that argument, there, there was at least one Democratic senator in Texas that argued tenure in itself is discriminatory and it's a barrier to entry for minorities. That's his argument. And so he was the one Democrat that voted with the Republicans on this legislation. But the bottom line for me is I just don't think this is a good idea. It's another way for the state to poke their nose in the business of the university. I think this is better left to the university. I think the university knows what's best for it and not the state, so. Yeah, I understand. Mm -hmm. Let us move on. Okay. So we go from protecting academic freedom to free speech. And this one is a it's a difficult topic. Um, yeah. One that needs some discussion, definitely. So Riley Gaines is uh was, I should say, a competitive act uh athletic swimmer at I believe it was the University of Kentucky. And she's speaking out, um, uh, speaking up for women's sports uh, because uh, I think her name is, is it Leah Thomas? Yeah, yeah. Leah Thomas. Yeah. The swimmer at the University of Pennsylvania. Right. Who Transgender swimmer. Right. Mm -hmm. Transgendering from man to woman um, and still has male genitalia came into the locker room and unrobed. Um, and exposed his male genitalia and took off the bathing suit, put back on whatever. And some women were very startled by that. Also, Leah is still physically like a, a man. And so she dominated all of the sports. And uh, Riley Gaines is speaking out against that. But when she was invited to, you know, San Francisco University, University of San Francisco, sorry, um, she got assaulted um, and held against her will. Um, yeah, that was crazy. Yeah. They were, were they, at, were they literally asking, like extorting her, asking for money to let her leave? Yeah, that's what she said. Yeah. She said that. And they were shouting uh, profanity at her, um, threatening her and doing the same thing. And they pummeled her 
and security got her into a classroom and they had to keep her in the classroom in order to protect her. She said and it was frightening. Were, and these were other students that were protesting outside? They were tra yeah, transgender community. Transgender rights activists. Uh, yes. Yeah. Wow. So it is a big thing with, and you and I talked about it this week, um, transgender athletes, particularly transgender men, transgender women, that's men going from man to woman, competing with women. Um, there's a lot of talk about the physical advantage, but then the pushback is, you know, you telling someone they can't identify as a woman. So I'm going to let you start off with this and tell me what are your thoughts? Well, first, I will say that just in general, I um, I support uh, Riley Gaines's right to voice her concerns as a former student athlete who competed against a transgender athlete. She competed against Leah Thomas. I support her right to voice her concerns. And I also support the rights of those students who protested against that. I just think that they crossed the line when they attacked her or uh, basically falsely imprisoned her or tried to extort money from her for voicing her concerns. So I would say at the outset, I believe in free speech. I believe in free speech on college campuses. I think a college campus is the perfect place for students to learn to be able to express their views and, and have an exchange of ideas and maybe challenge each other's views but we have to do that in a civil manner. So I think this is a, the great, a great place for, kids, for our young people to learn to do that so that when they become older and get out into society in various um, positions that they will be, we will be able to listen to each other because I think that's part of the problem that we're having today. But when it comes down to the issue in particular, um, I do think that in some cases it 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 it's definitely unfair for transgender um, athletes to compete against certain other athletes. So, for example, with Leah Thomas, I disagreed with her being able to compete in women's swimming because when she was competing as a uh, man before she decided that she wanted to identify as a woman she was not very successful in the sport. But then when all of a sudden she um, became a woman, which is I have no problem with, and I, I am a proponent of, if I'm a proponent of everyone being who they are and being that um, publicly and, and proudly. Um, however, when she, when she competed as a, um, a woman, uh, all of a sudden, she dominated the sport. And so I just think that, you know, in most cases, men are just physically stronger than women. And if you are still, a, a, you know, physically um, a man, 
then that's just unfair. So perhaps there should be a trans, there should be transgender sports. I mean, I don't know, but it, it, maybe it depends on the sport because what if it's fencing or what if it's a sport that does not depend on your strength or your physicality, so to speak. Do you understand what I'm saying? So I, I would say the bottom line is my views are evolving just on that issue. I see both sides, but it just seems, I, I mean, I'm open to hearing why transgender male athletes should be able to compete with women. It just seems like a physical advantage that you will always have. Okay, so it's it, it would be transgender woman. Um, what did I say? Transgender male athlete. Okay, yes. So it's okay. usually going from that side. And I, I concur with your thoughts. I just think I don't have enough information. I, I uh, would err on the side of the physicality too. Yeah. Uh, if you're bigger, stronger, fat, and you're just in, strong as a man, I think you have an advantage over the woman that you're competing against. So I think that we need to take a look at that. And um, well, I would have to hear both sides in both arguments because I'm sure there are valid points. Um, but I, I do understand um, uh, Miss Gaines's side of it. Um, but I, I think that needs to be looked into. Yeah, but overall, I think the problem is that we are all proponents of free speech when we agree with the message. And I just think we have to work on just being consistent with that. We, I mean, if you are a proponent of free speech, you have to be open to hearing things that you may not agree with. You know what I mean? Because you want people to be to hear your position as well. I, I How do you feel about that? What, what if a, uh, a white supremacist wanted to come and speak at Morgan State University? At Morgan State? Yeah, I'm just saying. Uh, See, it becomes complicated when you have those scenarios. No, I mean, I wouldn't have them come for a measure of safety. That's why. Okay. You know, but not to suppress their... Yeah, it's not like... <laughs> You know, and then I don't want anybody coming down, you know, uh, offending an, an audience either. So you you have these students come to your institution and you're bringing in somebody that's going to make incendiary remarks about your students. And I just wouldn't do that. I just oh, think that, yeah. that, that's not prudent. Yeah. Um, so I would tell like somebody like John Spencer is like, no, I can't have you at this institution. You would have to go talk to another university that would be willing. Um, so I don't know if I'm blocking free speech or in that situation or I'm making a, um, a decision that will cut down on a possible riot or destruction of the campus. So, yeah. Right. Okay. Let us move on. All right. So, our last. We're back to the state of Texas. Flight 
Here we go again with Texas. Yeah, Texas. The Ten Commandments placed in Texas Texas public classrooms. So the the deal is that they passed the bill like the Ten Commandments have to be displayed and largely displayed, actually. Um, conspicuous is the word that they use. Conspicuously displayed in every public classroom. Uh, what say you? Uh, oh, my God, my dog. At first, I was thinking that you know, this is totally innocuous. It's not going to hurt to have the Ten Commandments placed in public school classrooms. But then I just had to conclude that this is exclusionary because what about other students who are not Christians? What about Muslims, Buddhists, Jewish students? It could be, you know, offensive to them or it's just not fair that it sort of... Um, favors one religion over another. That's one thing. The other thing is that, again, this just seems like what I can't believe these legislators are coming up with this, with the, with, with these laws that don't seem to actually move the needle on any issue or help solve any problems that their constituents may be facing in Texas. This is ridiculous. Like you're going to who cares if the Ten Commandments, which, by the way, is in the Old Testament. And I thought, I mean, they consider themselves to be such big Christians, but I thought that Jesus came to fulfill the law. And this is part of the Old Testament. We're no longer under the law after after Jesus came and died on, on the cross for our sins. So, I mean, it's the equivalent to me of when Trump held the Bible upside down. Or when he's when he was referring to Second Corinthians, and instead he said two Corinthians. It's like stop faking like you're this big Christian. Like <laughs> this is not going to help anything. So, what do you think? Well, let me say this, and I I guess we both uh, can come out about this. We both grew up in the church. Yes. All right. So the Ten Commandments was always. And has always been a part of our lives. Now, as far as, you know, when I went to college, I learned about the 42 principles of Mayat, which it seems like the Ten Commandments kind of like jacked 10 of those uh, away from, you know, a different spiritual belief. As a Christian, I I'm okay with it. Um, but then like, you have to separate, and you told me that separation of a church and state is not in the Constitution, and we broke that down. Uh, but because of that, I don't think they should display it because unless you're going to display other religions, and then there are too many religions to display, you'll have a religious wall, and that will be all over the place place so for that reason i don't think they should post it um i don't find it offensive but then again like i said i grew up a christian so memorizing the ten commandments was what we did now i do disagree with you when you say it won't change anything yeah 
it can change things. People can read that. It can change them. Um, okay. Well, yeah, yeah, in that no. way, I'm talking okay. about. So um, there, and they have a plausible argument, but it's a faith-based argument. What's I the mean, What's the plausible, the plausible argument? argument? Is that you know we need God back. You know we need God in school. We need God to uh, give us some morals and some guidance. That's their plausible argument. They're not doing. They feel that it will make people um, maybe not agree with the LBGTQ community. Um, I believe that's why they're doing it. But I religion believe- doesn't have a have have religion does not necessarily equal morality. I mean, Christians enslaved Africans. Do you see what I'm saying? So. I understand what you're saying, but I know you get what I'm saying when I said they feel like they're going to go back to how things used to be. And then also State Senator Phil King said the Ten Commandments are part of American heritage and it's time to bring them back into the classroom and make students better Texans. When I hear that, that just sends off alarm bells because it's it's as if they're saying they're they're trying to take us back to a time when America was built for white male Christian men. That's really what it is. And so it just seems like it's excluding people. Do you see what I'm saying? No, not on that one. Because like I said, you grew up in the church, so you grew up with the Ten Commandments. How is it excluding you? It's excluding other religions, but we, you know, like it or not, we were indoctrinated under Christianity and we took it and we ran with it. The black church is powerful in the United States. It just is. So, I, you know, on the one side, like I said, I don't think it's a great idea, but I understand what they're trying to do. Like, I, I, I can't bounce on something that I use to govern and guide my life to. And not just me, the majority of my friends that I grew up with, they wouldn't have anything to say against the Ten Commandments. Now, we've all evolved, and we don't think people should be persecuted because they're not a part of our religion. Um, I never was that way. Like, if you believe in something else, then you believe in something else, and I wouldn't disrespect your religion. It's just like when the Jehovah Witnesses come to my house i let them in i don't have a problem talking about god you sit at the table i'm not joining your kingdom hall because i already have a church but if you just want to talk about christ and you want to talk about the old testament and new testament i'm okay with it that's why i said the ten commandments i look at it as not so much of a harmful document but in you made the statement first and i agree with you what about other religions and what about people who don't believe in Christ or religions or faith or spirituality at all? Right. So for those reasons, I think it should not be up. And then also, what about uh, kindergartners or first graders reading uh, thou shalt not commit adultery or covet thy neighbor's wife and, and wanting to know what that is? Maybe their parents aren't ready for them to learn about that. I don't know. 
but I wanted to care as my first grade. If I'm, my and and then knew, <laughs> knew what adultery well, that's was. That's you. That's you. But yeah. but then the other thing is, is I would I would bet that those children would rather have the government do something about these mass shootings in their school as opposed yeah. to that's the straw man yeah. argument again. You go well, I'm just route. That's like, so, that's just pointing it, out how ridiculous this is. Just because you put the commandments All problems. Just because you put the commandments in the all uh, in the classroom doesn't mean that you're not uh for the government changing policies about guns. I'm just suggesting that there's a better use of time and legislation. I don't think this is that's it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Hey. And let us move on. Okay, so today I want to talk about one thing that I like, we like here in the Jackson household, and that is McDonald's. I do want to state at the outset that I am not uh, a proponent of unhealthy eating. In fact, I am a proponent of healthy eating. However, everything in moderation, okay? So there is no substitute for McDonald's fries and Let's just say there are only a couple of things that I actually enjoy from McDonald's. I I like the egg McMuffin for breakfast, and I but I don't have it often. And I really like the fries, and don't sleep on the chocolate chip cookies. Mostly, my children go there. Um, just last night, my daughter had a spicy chicken sandwich um, with the fries. And they have good um, coffee drinks, like the, fra the frappes and things of that nature. Um, again, only in moderation. But, you know, my kids have loved McDonald's so long. And, um, and I've, I've gone there for so long that, you know, I've decided to be a stockholder. So I do have a couple of shares of McDonald's. And quiet is kept. McDonald's is actually a real estate company. Did you know that they own the real estate on which all of their restaurants sit? Yeah. Yeah. So that's really where most of their uh, wealth comes from. And so, um, yes, McDonald's. Got to love it, especially the fries. And let us move on. All right. Let's do that again. Let us move on. We have a question. It's a question. Address the question. This is a question. So what's the question? Answer the question. Hey. 
All right. So our question of the week is how can a girl go 25 days without sleep? How can a girl go 25 days without sleep? Remember to uh, log on to, I mean, email us at potlickershow at gmail.com potlickershow at gmail.com and the first person who answers the question correctly will receive a prize. Last week's questions was what are two things you can never eat for breakfast? And the answer to that, my partner will tell you was lunch and dinner. Yes, <laughs> you can't eat lunch and dinner for breakfast. For breakfast. How can a girl go 25 days without uh, sleep? Email us. Email us. P-O-T-L-I-Q-U-O-R-S-H-O-W at gmail.com. And let us move on. All right. We have a special guest today, the Honorable Alexander Williams Jr. And I am going to let my partner give the introduction. Indeed, I am very excited and honored to introduce you all to someone who is near and dear to my heart. And you would have to uh, Google him to get his full biography because we could literally spend the rest of this podcast um, outlining all of his accomplishments and his credentials. But I will sum it up to say, you know, he was the state's attorney for Prince George's County, which is the top prosecutor in our in our county. He was uh, appointed as a federal judge by President Clinton and was a federal judge for over for 20 years. He is a minister. He is a law professor. And he is uh, most recently the executive director of the Alexander Williams Jr. Center for Education, Justice and Ethics. Um, he's done just about everything you could think of as a distinguished uh, attorney and jurist. Um, and he also officiated our uh, wedding. <laughs> so this is, again, is someone who is near and dear to my heart. He is a mentor as well. The Honorable Alexander Williams, Jr. Welcome to our podcast, Judge Williams. How are you? Thank you, uh, Kim and uh, Dr. A. It's just a, a joy to be with both of you today and your listeners uh, I enjoyed the discussion earlier on the uh, freedom of speech under the First Amendment and uh, that whole uh, atmosphere about trying to erase history and trying to remove critical race theory out of the classrooms. I, I heard that. Uh, and also I enjoyed the uh, discussion of uh, freedom of uh, speech and, uh, and any uh, establishment clause. Uh, of religion, that uh, again, you cannot establish in the name of the state a particular or favor a particular religion. So that was, uh, of course, uh, interesting. And uh, it's certainly uh, hot button discussions these days about transgenders 
participating in women's uh, athletes, athletic events, and also carries over to bathrooms and that sort of thing. So uh, you all's discussion has been very, very interesting, very timely. Uh, I uh, enjoyed it. Oh, good. That's great to hear coming from you. And of course, you're, you would be qualified to speak on any number of issues. Um, but today, we kind of wanted to focus on sentencing and in particular, mandatory minimums. And I know you have a lot of experience with that as a federal judge um, presiding over about a thousand criminal cases and 200 of them approximately um, dealt with mandatory minimums. Is that correct? Yes, I had a number of cases as a federal judge, uh, and uh, I enjoyed my 20 years as a federal judge. And the only uh, downside, the only part of that judicial experience I didn't like was sentencing, and that's because of the uh, mandatory sentencing guidelines that uh, essentially took the power away from judges to take into consideration the unique backgrounds and characters of individuals uh, and gave the power to prosecutors uh, who uh, had the uh, power to determine what people would plead to and and how to manipulate the uh, sentencing uh, uh, guidelines. So I uh, did like that aspect, but we did the best that we could under very uh, difficult circumstances to uh, to try to still do justice. Right. And as you know, uh, Kim, I have gone around the area uh, trying to uh, talk about eliminating uh, mandatory minimum sentences and this uh, three strikes you out stuff and all of these enhanced uh, sentencing. All of these things were unfair because they discriminated against people of color. Uh, and uh, as you know, under the uh, crack cocaine uh, versus uh uh, powder cocaine it was a big discrepancy in who got what. And most of the people that I sentenced long uh, uh, periods of time were black young males who were, were involved uh, or allegations of, of crack cocaine as opposed to uh, uh, powder. And, and of course, uh, uh, the listeners probably know the difference between crack and, and powder is that uh, uh, white people's choice of cocaine was, was powder, whereas blacks tended to to increase the profit. They cooked it, uh, right. in, uh, using baking powder and turned it into a crystal. And uh, the sentencing uh, authorities made a distinction between powder and and crack, which made no sense at all because it's it's all uh, the same. So uh, so yes, sentencing uh, guidelines, mandatory sentencing guidelines are awful. Uh, uh, I uh, spent 20 years pretty much under it, and uh, I'm pleased to say now that uh, the Sentencing Commission, uh, after so many uh, protests and advocacies, they've now loosened that a little bit, given uh, uh, some of the uh, judges, <clears throat> federal judges, a little more authority and discretion to uh, deviate from those guidelines. And then they have other things such as compassionate reliefs and the uh, second chance legislation and that sort of thing. So it's a lot going on, but it's still too many uh, individuals who are incarcerated who are, are predominantly uh, African-American. And that's uh, a, a real crisis uh, in this country. Okay. So you, you touched on an issue that I've been talking about a lot. Uh, I'm 54 years old and I grew up in New York and I grew up in what I would call 
a financially impaired neighborhood, right? Where that type of activity went on. And I also worked for Channel 2 News when those protests were going on. Now, I would, I would have to confess that I didn't like the fact that there was a discrepancy between the crack and the powder. But I would ask, you know, people when we had these meetings, what would you change? Would you change it and make sure like the people who were using the powder sentence increased to match those with crack? Or would you have eliminated that mandatory minimum altogether? Well, it's a great uh, observation, Dr. A, and uh, and that uh, observation was made all over America in Chicago and Detroit, St. Louis, and, and so forth. And uh, it just seems to me, first of all, there was a 10 to 1 discrepancy between a sentencing for cocaine mm -hmm. uh, powder versus crack. So you certainly should have eliminated that. But uh, I, uh, I felt overall that the drug laws were just too stiff, period. And they should have been a decrease. I mean, what about the white collar crime that took place when, when people were taking advantage of people financially? Those uh, uh, sentences uh, uh, were just too light from my standpoint. So uh, I would first uh, certainly decrease the discrepancy between 10 to 1, which they have done. And uh, and I just saw no need to, to uh, zero in on uh, a crack and cocaine in particular for mandatory minimum sentences. Let judges have the uh, authority to uh, to look at the backgrounds of individuals, where they've come from, their education, and that sort of thing, and then factor that in when sentencing them. And and and, and all this crack cocaine and and, and uh, sentencing uh, mandatory sentencings all came into place when they start putting African Americans as judges. And, and, and they took away, as I said, the power and authority of of, of uh, ordinary people who grew up uh, in these neighborhoods from considering the background. I was uh, on a panel just yesterday at, uh, at the uh, Department of Justice, uh, myself and uh, the guy who I uh, sentenced to life imprisonment, uh, Evans Ray, uh, because uh, uh, he had these are three time uh, uh Convicted a person in drugs. He had some bad, uh, uh, some bad judgments, poor judgments when he was a youngster. But they were two convictions in state court. Then when he got to my court, he was convicted, and that was the third time, and he got life. Hmm. And, and in the federal system, there's no parole in life. And so uh, I continued to write on his behalf. I made a statement at sentencing that he should not have been uh, uh, given life. And then uh, ultimately, I sent a letter to uh, President Obama, who gave him clemency. And uh, after 12 years, uh, uh, he was uh, released. And so uh, he and I have been moving around the area talking about the elimination of mandatory minimum sentences, uh, which is my passion. So it's sort of my passion, too. And I, like I said, I'll go back. I was having people look at me funny when there were discussions of, about this when I was at a forum. So this is some of my take on it. One, I know a lot of black pastors were in favor of, of the mandatory minimums because during the 80s when crack came out, it devastated black communities and drug dealers were not kind. They held communities of color hostage. You know, they threatened them. They killed them. 
they sold crack to a lot of black people and those black people have families and those family people were not supporting their kids. These kids suffered through nutrition. So there was a lot of devastation. And I got sick and tired of people crying for these Negroes that's devastating our community. Why? I was in that community. So my take was a little different, like the three strikes. And I'll just come out. My brother had two strikes. He was going to get three strikes. And I just told Ken prior to the podcast, you got one strike. They said, hey, don't do this again. You got another strike. They said, hey, don't do this again. You got a third strike. You gone. These criminals are smart. They know the three strike rule. So why are you still doing what you're doing, brother? Right? They caught you once. They let you go. They caught you twice. They let you go. They caught. So make it a four strike or make it a five strike. If it was a five strike situation, I still think a lot of these guys would go to jail. Right? And so the excuse is like, Okay, they African-American, they from poor neighborhoods. Believe it or not, there were less, there were more kids that went to school and did not do those things than kids that did. And I get it. The socioeconomic system in this world does not favor black people. Employment does not favor black people. I get it. But I was telling people that I grew up with, y'all Negroes trying to take the fast route to get somewhere, you make all that money and that money you make, you pour right back into white companies. You, it, you, you don't become, a lot of them don't become entrepreneurs and make money and keep it in the black community. They go buy their foreign cars and they Gucci, Versace and yeah, black folks that work legitimately are guilty of that too. But what I was saying like, man, we have enough programs for these individuals why do y'all keep doing the same thing that y'all are doing? And with that still, being a black person, I still pray for their souls when they were out there on that street because I didn't want them to go to prison. And I didn't want them to go to jail. But I dag sure wanted them to stop hurting black families because that's what they were doing. There are a lot of families that are still ripped apart until this very day because their mother's was smoking crack. They had crack babies. They did that crack was potent when it came out, and it made you forget about your family. You selling your food stamps that the government is giving you, yada yada yada. So when you up there in the court and you have the suit and you saying, you know, I only had a few crack rocks in my pack. Those crack rocks have victims. So that's why I wasn't a huge proponent of that i i didn't like i just told you i did not like the powder situation with the crack i thought that was unjust they shouldn't have done that but my problem my situation was don't get rid of the mandatory minimum increase the powder cocaine to equal the crack so now if you get caught with powder or crack which are both drugs you you gone period and like i said they could have increased the strikes they could have took it to five strikes I'd be like, okay, make it five strikes. Give them, give them five chances. Give them six chances. Now, nah, Negro, you got to learn, like, <laughs> you doing something bad and they telling you and you continue to do it, there's consequences. And at that point, brother, I don't care about your consequences. I care about it on the first time, but I don't care about it on the third time because you doing something 
When I put my hand on the stove, my mom spanked me for putting my hand on the stove and cutting the fire on. Guess what? I ain't do it again. Yeah, yeah, Reverend Mel, oh, excuse me, uh, Reverend, uh, Doctor, <laughs> yeah, he just preached like a sermon. Yeah, he sounds like a Reverend, but, but okay. Dr. A, listen, I, I, you've made some very important uh, uh, points, and uh, and I agree with you. And I would simply uh, say this, just as a, as a thought. Uh, first of all, uh, there's no excuse for individuals again bringing that kind of poison into the black community. I agree with you on that. Uh, one of the problems of uh, the criminal justice system is that it only uh, punishes the low-level people who are trafficking this stuff and selling on the corner as opposed to the big dogs that uh, furnish it and so forth. So that's one thing. Secondly, it's um, uh, I just think that the penalties uh, still are just too heavy uh, from that standpoint. To give somebody 30, 40 life on the federal system uh, to me, is uh, very unfortunate because everybody can be saved at some point. The other uh, problem with the criminal justice system and this crack cocaine and all of this and the mandatory minimum is that now you have this fentanyl out here right now, which is uh, affecting white people. And what are they talking about? Instead of increases in penalties, they're talking about health. They're talking about giving them uh, uh, all types of uh, uh, issues with uh, suing the pharmaceuticals and giving them treatment. And so you, you're talking about the 80s, uh, Dr. A. I was back in the 70s. And in the 70s, you had that heroin out there that was killing people. They never talked about any kind of treatment for African-Americans. But now that white people are affected, by uh, this fentanyl, all of a sudden, we're talking about treatment as opposed to uh, uh, incarceration. incarceration right. So I just have some fundamental differences, and I've talked about that with the criminal justice system. And that's why uh, I left uh, the bench after 20 years, and I've opened up my uh, my policy center uh, there at the University of Maryland, which deals with social justice, including uh, uh, correcting the criminal justice system or reforming it. But I, I, but I do agree with a lot with Dr. A has said that uh, it's been a, a devastation on our community with that mess, that poison. Indeed. And, you know, I, it's great that you have established, uh, established this center. It's as if you're carrying on the legacy of Howard Law, where we were taught by um, Charles Hamilton Houston, who was a former dean of, of the law school, that a lawyer is either a social engineer or a parasite on society. So I think it's great that you've established the center where you basically identify uh, problems in underserved communities and you come up with solutions to solve those problems. Is that correct? That's right. We, uh, we hire researchers and others to uh, address uh, social issues by disadvantaged and underserved communities. And not only is it the criminal justice, but all types of disparities in wealth, in health, in, in you know, in, in other areas that uh, we look at. So uh, I'm uh, pleased with it. Uh, it's going well. Um, I think I'm making a difference. I, I, I love it. And I'll continue to do it. Sounds great. And is this, is this in, in Maryland and D.C. or in the DMV area? Or it's, uh, all over? Dr. A, it's, uh, it's uh, mostly in Maryland right now, but the uh, center is designed to be a national uh, think tank and the policy center. So uh, we'll be uh, certainly moving 
uh, across the country. Uh, we're now in Prince George's County, but we also are expanding to Baltimore City, and we're going to have uh, programs for young people on youth diversion and try to address some of that uh, violence and shooting that's taking place in Baltimore. So, mm. yeah, so so that's what's uh, going on. And uh, 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 before we let you go, D Judge Williams, you're also uh, what you've also completed your memoir. Can you tell us what the title of that is and when we can expect to to be able to buy that memoir? Sure, sure. I'm still, I'm, I'm trying to find a, a publisher right now. And, uh, but I finished uh, my uh, autobiography. It's called Unqualified. That's the name of it, Unqualified. And it's uh, based on uh, people not having any confidence uh, in what uh, I could do or my ability. And it started from uh, uh, junior high school or middle school, as they call it now, when uh, teachers told my mom uh, he wasn't college material. And uh, and then it continued on when I ran for the top job in Prince George's County. People said, you, you're you not qualified to be the chief law enforcement officer. We'll be beat that. And then, uh, as you know, uh, uh, Kim, when I was nominated by President Clinton to serve on the federal bench, uh, the American Bar Association came out with a recommendation that he was not qualified. And so right. I've been fighting uh, this, uh, whatever it is, uh, and, and I love it because I'm a fighter. And uh I uh, putting all that in my memoirs and my autobiography. So if I don't find a publisher soon, then uh, old boy going to publish it himself. <laughs> <laughs> and I will buy the first copy. Yes. Okay. All right. Great. All right. Well, I appreciate it. And uh, I thank you all for having me uh, today. And, uh, and uh, Kim, uh, you of course, uh, you clerked for me, and uh, you were talking about uh, freedom of speech, and you had that big case by the Palatine Press, as you know, uh, 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 the hitman. <laughs> you can tell them all about that. That's freedom of speech from that standpoint. How to kill somebody? Whether that, right. whether it's it's uh, a violation of freedom of speech to ban it. So, uh, but anyway, yeah. Uh, thank you all. Uh, for inviting me. So uh, Dr. A and Kim, I appreciate it. Uh, call me back anytime. I, I love to talk. We sure will. We sure will, indeed. Yeah, now now that we know that you're a pastor, we're going to bring you back. We got some <laughs> other stuff to talk about on the other side. <laughs> yeah, I'm one, I'm one of these uh, these pastors or whatever you call them. <laughs> whatever you call them. Yeah, yeah. Nice to meet you. Okay, great. All right. Thank you all. Talk to you later, Judge Williams. All right. Bye. Bye, bye. All right. I love him. I see. Mm -hmm. And let us move on. Like this. Keep the keep on. So, I just always just want to hear the rest of that song every time I hear the beginning. You, you, you kind of forget about what you need. I know. Exactly. That is literally my favorite song. Okay. So today we want to talk about 
Dr. Alexander Thomas Augusta, our little known black history fact. Alexander Thomas Augusta was the first and one of eight black surgeons who served in the army during the Civil War. And he was the first black professor of medicine in the United States. He was born on March 8th, 1815 in Norfolk, Virginia. In 1856, he earned his medical degree from Trinity College at the University of Toronto in Ontario, Canada, because he was not allowed to go to medical school in the United States. It was in 1863 that he became the Army's first Black doctor and the first Black hospital administrator in United States history. In 1868, he became the first African American to be appointed to the faculty of any medical school in the United States when he became a professor of medicine at Howard University Medical School. Dr. Alexander Thomas Augusta, our little known Black history fact. Hey. All right. And let us move on. Oh, hell no. Oh, hell no. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Well, let's go with the all hell no. Okay. All right. Let's do it. All hell no is 84-year-old Andrew Lester who shot and killed uh, Ralph Yarl. A 16-year-old black boy. Uh, I no, think. no, no, he wasn't killed. Oh, I'm sorry. Who shot? Yeah, he actually is still alive. So the 84-year-old man, and I forgive me, family, on that. Yeah. Uh, the 84-year-old man shot him. He, uh, young Ralph, went to the wrong house, mm -mm -mm. and um. Uh, Andrew Lester said he saw him at the house and he just he picked up his shotgun and went to kill him because he thought he was trying to uh, break in. But I think didn't he continue shooting him? He shot him twice. He yeah. shot him once. And some people could argue, oh, it was a mistake. No, I don't think it was a mistake in any form or fashion. But then he shot but him he again. So it was a mistake. You said what? He, he Lester didn't say it was a mistake. Well, no, he didn't. But this story has dominated the news this week. And a lot of people were arguing that, oh, it could have been a mistake. You see what I'm saying? But there's no way it could be a mistake if you shot somebody in the head, they drop, and then you shoot them again. That's very intentional. So, yeah, this guy out of control. And then his family even um, admitted that he <laughs> is... A white supremacist, basically. And he, you know, follows Fox News and he believes in all of these crazy conspiracy theories, including QAnon and all of that foolishness. So, yeah, I mean, he was waiting for his moment, I think, to do this. And this, you know, prob he probably thought this was the perfect opportunity to take advantage of, the, of that. In rural Kansas, I think this happened. So it's out in the middle of nowhere. And this... This boy was just going to pick up his younger twin brothers from a sleepover and went to the wrong house. Was it rural or was it Kansas City? I thought it was rural. 
Okay. But I could be wrong. Um, but at any rate, um, and he went, you know, he went to the neighbors to try to get help and several people refused to open the door. Um, but I found out after the fact, um, because <laughs> I do watch TMZ <laughs> and on TMZ, they interviewed one of the neighbors and she was saying that when they called the police, the police told everybody to stand down, get away from your doors, get away from your windows because there's an active shooter. They got a call that there was the shooter. And so they were actually instructed not to answer the door, not to open the door. So, you know, um, I, you know, I can understand how people would come down on the neighbors saying that they wouldn't even help an innocent um, child. But now that we know more, we see why people didn't come out. But fortunately, people yeah. didn't listen and they came out anyway and, and 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 rendered aid to him. And he's still alive. Thank God. Yeah. Um, yeah. But this was just awful. I mean, why would you come to your door with a gun anyway? I mean, I'm sure he gets Amazon packages and stuff. And I mean, are you going to pull the gun on the delivery person? I, yeah, mean, I mean, his mind was working one way and that's how he operated. Exactly. So shame on him. He got to go. And let us move on. Okay, our last focus of the day is always our podcast, and today it is Black Wall Street Today. Um, it's uh, uh, well, it's Black Wall Street Today, hosted by Blair Durham, and um, it's uh, uh, really a hub for a black entrepreneurship. Is uh, related politics, news, and events. Um, I've listened to two of her episodes. She's very good and very informative. So anybody that wants to talk about, like, uh, wants to learn more about finances, I encourage you to check out her podcast. To write that down. Yeah, Black Wall Street today. Let us move on. And let us move on. Okay, my partner would take us over this one. This is Fantasia, who is going to Central, right? College in Ohio. Talk to us about it. Yeah, so Fantasia Barino Taylor, affectionately known by one word, Fantasia, that means she can sing. She's up there with Aretha and Whitney. <laughs> so, yes, Fantasia. Um, she was famously, um, what was that? In Jennifer. Right, exactly. She famously um, could not read at one point, and she uh, overcame that obstacle. She learned to read. She obtained her GED. And now she's enrolled at Central State University, which is a, a historically Black college in Wilberforce, Ohio. And she's going to be taking her classes online. She's going to study business. And I mean, I think this is great. Um, at 38 years old, she is um, taking on this challenge. And she wanted to show her children that it's never too late to 
fulfill your dreams. So I think this is this is great. And she's also an honorary member of Sigma Gamma Rho sorority. So shout out to Fantasia. We wish you all the best. All right. <laughs> all right. So let's wrap up today. All right. That was episode 16. Our plugs for the day were Jimmy Choo, McDonald's, and Black Wall Street today. Our words of wisdom came from Stokely Carmichael. Our noses are broad, our lips are thick, our hair is nappy. We are black and beautiful. Our three, what's going on today was Texas Senate approves bill eliminating faculty tenure. Uh, free speech is under attack. We talked about Riley Gaines and um, protecting uh, women's uh, athletic events. And then Texas, the state of Texas, once again, once the Ten Commandments uh, conspicuously, conspicuously posted in every public classroom in the state of Texas. All right. Uh, our question of the week, how can a girl go 25 days without uh, a little known black history fact was about Alexander Thomas Augustus or Alexander Augusta Thomas. Thomas Augusta. Thomas Augusta. Okay. Uh, I all hell know went to Andrew Lester for shooting Ralph Yall. And we gave it up to the lovely Fantasia for going to uh, Central State in Ohio. And as always in parting we want to thank you everybody for taking time out of your busy schedule to hang out with us and as always in parting we wish you love peace and soul and so and we will see y'all next week